Gospel. All right, over the next six weeks, we're going to be starting a brand new series going through the book of 2 Peter, verse by verse. How many of you guys like going through the, the Bible verse by verse? So the good thing about it is you can't skip the hard stuff. Anybody ever got to a hard verse? Yeah. Uh, a verse that was tough to deal with? See, that when you go through a verse like this, like this, you can't skip those things. You know, it's real easy as a, as a preacher to be able to pick out all the good stuff. I can put together a, a powerful message if I don't want to tell anybody the, the hard stuff. But the reality is, is that we have to teach every part of the Bible. We can't just pick and choose. Otherwise, you get, uh, you guys remember the, the flow on the progressive insurance where she could pick out the different parts of the insurance? Church isn't like that. You don't get to go around and have progressive Christianity where you get to pick the parts that you want and you got to ignore the other parts. But uh, we're going to go ahead and get started, uh, yeah, over the next six weeks. We're going to do about half a chapter a Sunday. And uh, before we kind of get started in this, let's, let's remember that a few weeks ago we ended uh, the book of 1 Peter. This is naturally the follow-up to the book of 1 Peter. And you'll remember that uh, last, uh, last time we went through this, he was addressing uh, a group of believers that were starting to feel some persecution. They were starting to, 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 to feel a little bit, and Peter reminded them that, hey, don't be shocked if you start facing various trials. He said, don't be, don't be shocked because you're going to deal with some stuff. But it was primarily a letter of encouragement, letting them know that God was there. He was going to get him through it. Now, this letter is written several years later. And it's actually written to a church that's in the midst of those persecutions, those trials that he was just warning them about. So this church is, uh, uh, you know, a lot of times we look at the early church and we're like, man, I wish I was alive back then. You probably wouldn't want to be alive back then. We live in a good time right now. So they're, they're going through problems, they're going through difficulties, and, and uh, uh, he begins to write this letter to start dealing with some church pro uh, problems, the, not only persecution, but also uh, we're going to start seeing him dealing with some false teachers. The one thing that's interesting to me is, anybody ever been to a church with problems? <laughs> if you're here, you've been to one, and I know we're not the only one, we're not perfect, we, every church has problems, every church has people, and people cause problems, that's the problem. <laughs> you know, you, you, the, the old analogy is, is that you, you, you can't have a, a horse stall that you can't expect to muck out the, the manure at some point. The problem is, is that, that uh, where there's people, there's messes. That's all there is to it. So uh, this isn't unique to today's church that there's problems. There's always been problems in the church since the very beginning. And what's happening is, is there's some false prophets coming out. They're, they're sharing some crazy stuff. They're kind of tweaking the gospel to fit their needs. They're, they're doing it out of greed or, or maybe they want some sort of uh, status or pedestal. But they're, they're starting to come out and, and twist what, what uh, Paul and Peter and the rest of the apostles had been teaching. And uh, Peter's going to begin to warn the church of these people. And truthfully, he kind of doesn't mince words at all with what's going to happen to these people. The reality is, is that uh, if you're going to spread a false gospel, if you're going to try to, to, to deceive people to, for your own particular gain or for greed or for whatever it is, you're ultimately going to pay a price. Because the reality is, is that if you're a teacher of the Word of God, you're going to have to give an account for what you teach. Uh, Pastor Joseph and I, when we get up here and speak, we're going to be held to a higher account than you guys for what we teach. We have a responsibility to make sure that we're studying the Word of God, that we understand it, and we're, we're, we're speaking truthfully and sharing the Word of God as it is written. 
But it's also a reminder to every person in this room, because not only are the teachers going to give an account, you need to be accountable for what you're listening to as well, what you're taking in, what you're hearing. Even if it's me or Pastor Joseph up here preaching, you don't just want to take everything that we say with a grain of salt. You actually need to be spending time in your word and understanding, you know, you take notes when, when I'm preaching, so that way you can go home and go, oh, okay, this is what he was saying, this is why he came to that end, because what if I just teach you something crazy? What if I wake up one morning, turns out there was mold in the bathroom, I get all loopy and I teach you something nonsense? You need to be responsible enough and know your word enough to know that, that that's not true. Now, we're working really hard to keep our shower clean, so this shouldn't be a problem. Shouldn't be an issue in the future, but um, the reality is, is you're still responsible to, to, for what you're taking in, for what you're hearing. You should be checking up even on what I am teaching and making sure that it stands up to scrutiny and stands up to the Word of God. Because the reality is, is that no teacher or preacher is the final authority. The Word of God is the final authority. Amen? That was, a, I mean, you should have amened loud right then. You guys missed your opportunity. That's, the reality is, is that God's Word is the final authority. And then finally, he ends the letter with a reminder that really all this stuff is going to pass away. It's the, the, the end of times is coming. We don't know when the day is or the hour is, but the reality is, is that when, when that time comes, we need to find ourselves in a position that we're without spot or blemish, that we're living a life that God has called us to. And this is accomplished by faith in Christ and living a life that is the natural result of a changed heart because you received him. And then today specifically, that was kind of an overview of the whole book. Today specifically, in the first half of uh, chapter 1, we're going to be dealing with uh, really looking at kind of what a Christian's life should look like. The qualities that a Christian should have that accompanies their faith. So let's get started. First Peter, or 2 Peter 1 verses 1 through 2 says, uh, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So, as you would expect, the book called 2 Peter is written by Simon Peter. But you know what? As I was studying this, did you know that it's, it's actually kind of controversial who wrote this book? Some people say that it wasn't Peter that wrote it. There are some scholars that argue that it shouldn't even be included in the Bible. It shouldn't be included as canon. <coughs> and they say that the reason they say this stuff is because the, the writing style is so different from 1 Peter. The, the, the way that grammar is used and the phrases and all that stuff, it's different than 1 Peter. And then there are some who would argue that, that, no, no, it's really the writing is so similar to Jude. Maybe it was Jude that wrote it. And even how he spells his name brings... How many of you guys, when you read this, always just say Simon Peter when you read it? Simon Peter. That's not how it's spelled. It's not a typo in your Bible. It says Simeon or Simeon. I don't know how... Simeon. Simeon Peter. And that's an interesting thing because if Peter wrote it, he would probably not have spelled his own name. So we got to look into that too because that seems kind of weird. But the reality is, is that it's just two different spellings for the same name. The Simeon is actually the, the Hebrew version of the way he would write his name. And, and the Simon is how you would write it in the Greek version. 
And scholars actually think, though, that and the reason why you see it in the ESV and in many other translations is spelled this way is as scholars think that, that this was the actual version that was used for these manuscripts because it turns out copies of this manuscript use the other spelling as well. But they figure that this is the, the original and, and actually this spelling is only used one other time in the New Testament. It's in the book of, of Acts, uh, chapter 15. And when James, Jesus' brother, is talking about Simon Peter, he, he says, Simeon Peter. So that's how James, brother of Jesus, also brother of Jude. That's interesting, right? Because it looks a lot like the book of Jude. But then the argument is, well, maybe it's not somebody else different that wrote it, but more likely, maybe he just used a different secretary. Back then, apparently, everybody had secretaries. But it's not because they were rich, it's because a lot of them didn't really know how to read or write very well. They actually, there were people that did all this stuff because they had to have people write this stuff. So uh, an example, a reasoning that it could be uh, have a different writing style because somebody else wrote it for him. He dictated the first letter and had one secretary write it or one, one assistant write it. And when he wrote the second one, he had a different person write it. Maybe it's just that Jude wrote the letter for him. Maybe Jude was the one he was using the assistant. That would make sense because Jude was Jesus' brother, same as James. They would probably use the same, the, the same way of spelling Peter's name because that's the background that they come from. But the one thing is I was studying this, and you begin to learn about this stuff. There's uh, a scholar, his name is Michael Kruger. He said this. He, he actually specializes in the canon of the New Testament. And he said, in our quest to determine the authenticity of 2 Peter, we cannot overlook the fact that 2 Peter, despite the reservations of some, was finally and fully accepted by the church as canonical in every aspect. So the good news is we don't have to worry about that. It's interesting. It's got a storied past, but the truth is the early church accepted it. The early church uh, found out, uh, thought that it was authentic. And actually, in my limited research, too, every argument that could be made saying that, that uh, it wasn't Peter can easily be explained. And the most likely solution the, is probably that Jude wrote it for him, and he also wrote a similar letter on his own behalf to somebody else. I don't know about you, but when I look at my teaching and my, my preaching and my um, uh, style of teaching, it looks a whole lot like my pastor's because that's, that's the DNA that I come from. That's, that's who taught me. And it's funny, we're part of Praise Chapel and we have a bunch of different churches. And I was talking to uh, uh, Pastor Ralph when he was here this last time. I said, you know, you can see the DNA and, and people, where they come from, who they trained under, because depending on who they came from, they teach and they sound different. They use different phrases. They use different terminology. So it's, it's more than likely Jude was just the one that wrote the letter for him. And because Simon was his teacher, he taught the same way. He wrote a very similar letter, which was the book of Jude. <laughs> but the reality is, is that the early church accepted 2 Peter as authentic. They accepted it as authority. They believed it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the good news is that I think we can safely say that Simon Peter wrote it, and we can accept it as the Word of God. Amen. So good stuff to know if anybody ever asks you about it. But uh, the truth is, is that it's the Word of God. Amen? So he starts off the letter saying that I am a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. He says he's a servant or a slave is another word that you can use for that. You guys know what a, a slave is? A slave is one who is wholly devoted to the will of its master. 
I think that's a great definition. A slave is someone who is wholly devoted to the will of their master. When I'm reading this stuff, though, I begin to ask myself, is this something that I can honestly say about myself? Is it something you can honestly say about yourself? Are you wholly devoted to the will of Jesus Christ, to the the Lord your God? Or do you still got a lot of your will poking in in there, doing the things that you want to do? He says, I'm a servant, I'm a slave, wholly devoted to God. And then he goes on to say, I'm also an apostle, which is actually a a position of authority. It's a position of some standing in the church. These are the ones that the apostles are the one that initially took Jesus' message and they started the church. It's a position of leadership. It's someone who ever was an apostle. They had the authority to create churches and to oversee churches. (coughs) It was also used as a description as someone who was sent on a mission or an ambassador. But the reality is is that that the apostles were those who were sent out to build the early church, to plant churches, to start something new. And that's why oftentimes when we talk about church planters, we we, we say that they're stepping out on an apostolic anointing because they're starting something new. They're they're to oversee the church. They're not uh, new apostles, but they're stepping out in that, that anointing to plant and start churches. And then he goes on to say, So he's a servant, which means he's a slave. He's an apostle, which means he's a leader. And then he says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So now he says, I'm a a slave. Slave. I'm a leader. And now I'm on equal standing to all of those who have similar faith. And at this point, I'm like, Peter's all over the place. He's like, I'm a slave. No, 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 I'm a leader. No, 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 I'm equal as you. But the reality is, is that all three are true. And that they should be true about our, our own lives. That, the, that We're all slaves to Christ. Every single one of us should be fully submitted to the will of God in our own lives. That every decision that we make should have that thought in the back. You know, I know it's kind of trite, it's kind of quaint, but what would Jesus do? We should be living our lives to look exactly like His. And not just a, a fancy bracelet so you can say, look at me, look at me. But this is a reality in your life. It's how you should live your life. And the great thing is, is he's a good master. He loves us. In addition, we all have roles to fill. For Peter, it was to be an apostle. For me, it's to be a pastor. But every single person in this room has a role to fulfill. They all have a position and purpose in the body of Christ, right? We just talked about that not too long ago when everybody volunteered. We all have a purpose to fulfill. And then the other reality is as far as our standing before God, we are all equal. The Bible says that God is not a respecter of person. When I am not holier than anybody in this room. Peter is not holier than anybody in this room. When we stand before God, all God sees is Jesus Christ who died for all of us equally. We are all equally righteous, all equally pure, all equally whole, all equally forgiven. Our standing before God is equal. That's what he's saying here. We're a faith of equal standing with ours. The apostles didn't get some special level. Pastors don't get some special level. Evangelists don't get some special level. The reality is is that we are all equal as far as God is concerned. And then he goes on and, and, you know, it's funny when I start writing these messages, I, I pull out a couple of verses and I'm like, doesn't seem like there's much here. And then I dig into his word. That was just verse one. We've been talking for how long? That was ver- and then he goes on in verse two and says some other cool stuff. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our 
Lord. May grace and peace be multiplied to you and the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. Who would like grace and peace in their life? You know how you get it? Knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. You need to know who God is. You know how you get to know who God is? Read his word. You get to read about him and get to, to knowledge of who God the Father is is by spending time in his word because then you can finally learn about his power in his glory in his might. You begin to see his love and the love that he has for you, what he was willing to endure and what he was willing to do to make sure that you are saved. Now, for those of you who have kids and have ever thought about it, giving up your child, sacrificing your child is unthinkable to me. If I was God, you're all going to hell because I'm not doing it. I'll be honest with you. But hey, God gave, I mean, you, you, but you don't know that if you don't actually spend time in his word and get to know him and spend time in prayer and get to know him. You don't know that. And we need to learn who Jesus is, right? We need to learn how, how he lived, who he is, what are the things that he did. You know, people, like I said, wear the silly braces. What would Jesus do? But they have no idea what Jesus would do. One of the funniest things that I, I always heard with that when they said, what would Jesus do? Apparently get angry and flip over tables is, a, is an appropriate response certain times. But the reality is, is that the, so many people don't know who God is, but the mysteries of who God is was laid bare in the life of his son. People wonder, does God want you healed? Well, let's look at what Jesus did. Every single person that came to Jesus for healing, he healed them. It's obvious the will of God is to, to heal because Jesus did it every single time. Jesus loved people. He gave his life. We can see the, the, the mysteries of God. God works in mysterious ways. No, he doesn't. His, Jesus is perfect theology. The mystery of God was laid bare. It was once mysterious to people, but it was laid bare in his son, and we can see who God is. And if you want grace and peace, you need to know who God is. You need to know who his son is, and you also need to know who you are in him if you want grace and peace. And then as we finish up these last couple of verses, there's something interesting I want to show you here. Has anybody ever uh, wondered where it says that uh, Jesus is God in the Bible? We believe that Jesus was 100% God and he's 100% man. And many people say, well, nowhere in the New Testament doesn't say that Jesus was God. So not only is it implied in an incredibly large amount of places, right? Jesus received worship. Only God could receive worship. Jesus forgave sins. Only God can forgive sins. Matter of fact, it was a whole big deal about that, right? Jesus said when they lowered the guy through the roof, well, it'll prove to you that I have the power to forgive sins on earth. What if I had to say, guy, get up and walk? We see that, that uh, 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 oh, I'm forgetting his name. Was it Thomas that got stoned? No, Stephen. Stephen got stoned and he looked up and he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So there's all these areas that point to Jesus being God, but you want to know that it says it two times in the Bible, just flat out says it. Equal standing with ours by our righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our God and Savior, Who? Jesus Christ. This is, when you look at the Greek, at least according to people who are smarter than me, the Greek, the, the way that this word is, is this is referring to one person. It's saying Jesus Christ is our God and Savior. Jesus is God. There's no two ways about it. 
And it's not the only place that it says it. Matter of fact, Paul says the same thing in Titus 2.13. Waiting for our blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Write those down. Those are two places where it specifically refers to Jesus as God in addition to the multitude of evidence that, that, God, that Jesus acted as God and received worship and received all of those things. That's bonus material for you right there. And then in 2 Peter 1, 3-4, Peter goes on. He says, His divine power has granted to us. Whose divine power? His. Jesus, our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Right? So it's Jesus' divine power. And the reality is that the foundation of everything that a Christian has is based on the power of Jesus Christ. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead dwells in us. It gives us everything. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. As believers, we actually understand that uh, nothing that we have is actually our own. Nothing that we have is ours. We didn't earn any of it. Everything that we have, God has given to us. And this is actually a tough one, I think, for many people, at least it was for me, um, that all your gifts, all your talents, all your abilities, everything that you have, material stuff and non-material stuff, like I said, like talents and abilities and gifts, they were given to you by God. You didn't earn them. You didn't, you're not special somehow, but God gave them to you for a purpose, to, to do His will in your life. And He has granted us all things to pertain to life and godliness as well because what He has accomplished inside of us through His Son is what actually allows us to truly live both on earth, if you want to live for God, you need Jesus' power inside of you, but also in the kingdom of heaven eternally one day. If you're not born again, if you don't have his life inside of you, that's, that's the narrow gate. Jesus is the narrow gate. He's the only way to get in to heaven. You know, one of the things that Joseph spoke of this morning when he was talking about that widow that says, may you go to heaven for this, that's a great gesture, but that's not how it works. You can't save enough widows. You can't save enough young girls to make earn your way into heaven. It's only through the narrow gate, which is Jesus Christ. The reality is, is the person who doesn't know Jesus is dead. They don't have what it takes for life and godliness. This godliness here, we'll talk about it a little bit later. It's another, another way to phrase it is moral excellence, to be able to live a morally excellent life. The only way that we can live that way have life and live it more of the excellence through the power of Jesus Christ inside of us. Because the reality is, if you don't have Jesus Christ, you are a, a slave to sin. And we talked about what is a slave, right? Where everything that you do is based on the will of your master. If you're a slave to sin, then everything you do is controlled by sin. But by his divine power, we have everything to pertain to life, not death. Because everyone who doesn't have Jesus Christ inside of them is dead. Even though they're walking around like they're alive. But the same divine power that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power that's inside each and every single one of you that has received him as your Lord and Savior. Now the thing is, as we hear that and we go, that seems pretty good, but I don't think we get that. This is God's power, God's life inside of you. Every time that you're struggling in a situation, remember that greater is he that is in you than it is in this world. Greater is he that is, I mean, you have that power. We're talking the, the power that raised Jesus from the dead. This isn't some, uh, you know, little five horsepower lawnmower motor. 
This is real power. It's inside of you. Remember that the next time you think you can't do something, that you can't be victorious, that you can't get free of something, remember what is inside of you. And again, he points it out. It's through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory in excellence. This word uh, knowledge that's used here is the Greek word ekpignosios, and it means full discernment or full knowledge. It's an intimate knowledge. It's not just a, a brush on the surface. It's, it's, in other words, it's not like, oh, Jesus? Yeah, I know Jesus. That's not the kind of knowledge that we're talking about. It's not knowing of him, but it's actually knowing him, having an intimate knowledge of him and understanding who he is. Because if you don't have that knowledge of him and who you are in him, you'll never live what has been accomplished inside of you because you're ignorant. It's the reason why I think that so many have stepped up to the line, but they continue to struggle. They receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but they never go any farther than that. They say a prayer one morning, and it kind of got a hold of their heart, but they don't move off the starting line. And I know this happens because it happened to me. For those of you who are here for our worship night, I actually shared my testimony and, and what happened with me. And I got saved when I was relatively young. Seven years old. It's the first time I, I asked the Lord into my heart. And for 20 years, till I was 27 years old, I never moved past that point. I've been to hundreds of altar calls probably to rededicate my life, but never got past that point. I never, because I never knew him. I never knew of him. I never knew what he accomplished inside of me. I never knew any of that stuff because I couldn't be bothered to spend time getting to know him. I knew just enough faith to, to, to be saved. Probably some of the time. Most of the time, not even that. So I spent 20 years stuck with no freedom, with no peace, with no vision, with no power, with no victory, with no hope, none of that stuff. I spent without it in this life because I didn't know him. I didn't know what he had done for me. It was all superficial. But through this knowledge, when you begin to finally understand who he is, it says we're called to his own glory and excellence. That means that we're, we're drawn into who he is. Do you know that we're supposed to look like Jesus? You know why you're called Christians? It means little Christ. You're supposed to look like him. There's, expect, there's that expectation that you begin to look like him because he lives on the inside of you. Ephesians 4.13 says, the measure of the stature of Jesus Christ is the end goal. He's the, he's the, the plumb line. We're supposed to, that's our goal, to look like Him. And that means that your life should change. When you're born again, it shouldn't just be something superficial, but how you live, how you walk, how you talk, how you do everything in your life should change how you think. And then it says, through that, being called the knowledge of him and being called to his excellence by that which he has granted to us precious and very great promises. That's an amazing promise in and of itself, but it says very, uh, very uh, uh, precious and very great promises. And you can find his promises all through the, the Old and the New Testament. You're going to find that, that he, he promises you're free that you're victorious, that you are brand new, that you're born of an incorruptible seed, that you are heirs of the kingdom of heaven, that you have eternal life, that you are loved. And that's just the beginning. We don't have enough time to read a list them all off. 
This is what it says in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 20. It says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. Every promise you find in the Bible is directed towards you through Jesus Christ. Every single one. And through these, these great promises, we become partakers of the divine nature. That God-like nature. We, we, when you're born again, you have a new nature inside of you because you begin to look like Him. He gives you victory, not because you're special or tough, but because He's victorious. He gives you power, not because it's internal to you, but because He's powerful. All these things, the divine nature, you become partakers of that. And as a result... You're free from the corruption of sin that is in this world. How many of you guys want to be set free from sin? Press into God. That's the only place to do it. If you want to be set free, begin to press into the reality that was accomplished when you said yes to Jesus. Begin to let that live out in our lives. But you're going to have to make a decision. You're going, to, you're going to see that there's some things that you have to do in the next verse. You have to make that decision. God's not going to drag you kicking and screaming. You have to make up in your mind that you actually want something different. You don't want the same old stuff that's gotten you nowhere your whole entire life. You see, the thing that I, I believe is that the greatest gift that we received from Jesus was not the forgiveness of sins. Now, that's important. We need forgiveness of sins, but that's not the greatest gift. The greatest gift was when he rose again from the dead and gave us a brand new life. Because the forgiveness of sins is like if you have a, uh, a leaky part on your motor... Anybody ever had an oil pan leak? And you go and, and you can go and you can clean it up and you can make it all nice. But then it just leaks again. So you got to keep cleaning it. That's kind of how the, the system was in the Old Testament. They would sacrifice something, gain forgiveness of sins, but then the sins would start stacking up again. They'd have to sacrifice again and it was over and over and over. But Jesus, once and for all, not only did he take care of the mess, but he fixed the leak. He made you brand new. You don't have to sin. You don't have a mess. You don't have anything else going on. The, the, the new birth results in a life that is able to live free from corruption, sin, and death. And that's an amazing thing. Amen? And then Peter goes on in verses 5 through 7 for this very reason. What very reason? That you have divine, <clears throat> divine nature and you have escaped from the corruption that is in this world. For this very reason, make every effort. It doesn't say, for this very reason, stand and receive everything without doing anything. It says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, to virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. This means your life should start to look different. This means there should be a change that's happening. And this doesn't happen by accident. You're going to have to make some decisions if you want to live a life that is for Him, that is godly. Growth happens by being intentional, by being disciplined about how you live your life going forward. It happens. It's, you have to be intentional. It's true that faith is the only requirement for salvation. But growth requires some work on your part. So Peter says to make every effort. The New American Standard translates it to applying all diligence. 
How much diligence? All diligence. He says, first, you supplement your faith. That means that you don't replace with faith, right? Salvation comes by faith. We're not replacing faith. But we supplement our faith with virtue. The, uh, the New American Standard also translates this virtue, uh, virtue with uh, moral excellence. He says that you supplement your faith with moral excellence. Living your, li- living your life right. Living out the reality that's been accomplished inside of you. He's talking about your character in fulfilling your purpose. So that means that you should look different. You should live differently. You should be fulfilling your purpose. To Greek philosophers, they thought that anything that fulfilled its nature was something that was excellent. So to give you a brief example of that, if you have a a beautiful guitar that's made exceptionally well, it sounds perfectly, the tuning is amazing, we would say that is excellent because that guitar is fulfilling its purpose to the best that it can. It's completely fulfilling its purpose. So they would say that that was something that was excellent. And the reality is, is that anything that does what it's supposed to do can be considered excellent, right? You know, you, you, an instrument that, that doesn't sound good, it's still an instrument, but no one would ever say it's excellent. Nobody would ever say a spork is excellent. They're useful, <laughs> but they don't really do anything great. For Christians, what that means for us is to have a character that does what it's supposed to do. That you would look like Christ. When you live your life and look like Christ, which is without sin, serving the kingdom to the point of death, that's how far Jesus went. Then you are living excellent. Because you, are, you have a brand new nature inside of you. As soon as you are born again, you, you have a, a new identity. You're no longer who you used to be, so you shouldn't look like who you used to look like. So living that out, living out what has been accomplished inside of you in moral excellence is, is what he means by supplementing your faith with virtue. And then he says supplement that. Supplement your faith also, faith also with knowledge. This is practical knowledge. Basically, this is a knowledge of who you are and who God is. You, he actually uses the word knowledge quite a few times in this letter. Because you have to to understand that, you have to have a knowledge that lets you uh, have, have a life, handle life successfully. You know, when stuff's coming at you, if you have an understanding of your word, if you have an understanding of what's going on, you're going to be a much stronger than with every wave that comes away. If you're, you're pushed away, you fall away. And this is, a, this, is, this is easily obtained by studying and being obedient to the word of God. So we need to be morally excellent. We need to obtain knowledge of his word by studying the word of God. And then he says, now you need to supplement that knowledge with self-control. Discipline and self-control are paramount to living a Christian life. If you want to be a successful Christian, you have to be disciplined. You have to exercise self-control. Because without exercising discipline, we're distracted by everything that comes our way. And the truth is, we live in a world where the whole point of everything is to distract you, to get your attention. Everything is trying to to, to make you stop and look at it. And this means that, that if we're not careful, if we're not disciplined, we'll be distracted by everything that comes our way. And the reality is, is that temptations will come. And self-control is how you come out victorious on the other side. 
Now, you have to have faith. You have to have a new identity. If you're not born again, you're never going to be able to resist temptation because sin is your master. But if you're born again, you begin to supplement that faith with self-control. And truthfully, that knowledge, because you may not even know that you're free. You may not even know that you're victorious if you never spent time in the Word to learn it. But that temptation will come, but with self-control, you can persevere. You can come out the other side victorious. And then it says next, steadfastness. Steadfastness means you don't give up. Steadfastness means that you're patient. You know, when you, when you ask God for something and, and it, it didn't happen by the time you finished the sentence, sometimes you have to be patient for God to move. You think you got a rough wait in a couple days. Moses waited for uh, 20, 20, 40 years. Abraham, 75 years? 25. All, my, all of them all messed up, discombobulated in my head. This is why you need knowledge so this stuff comes back faster. Or, or have a Pastor Joseph that you can get the information from quickly. Hallelujah. Noah was 125 years. Pretty sure on that one, right? There we go. So if you think you got a bad wait, Noah was 125 years, he waited. And he didn't save anybody. Least successful prophet in the whole Old Testament. Everybody died except for his family. But he was faithful. And God was faithful to him. Got him through it. The crazy thing is that everybody else had the opportunity, but they rejected it. You thought you waited a long time. Can you imagine waiting 125 years, building something nobody has, has ever seen before to prepare for a condition that nobody's ever seen before? Nobody knew what a flood was. Nobody knew what a boat was like that size to deal with that. Matter of fact, some scholars, and, and, and this is one of those things that uh, uh, it's interesting and, and it's not something that I would stake my life on. The gospel I'll stake my life on. This is something I find interesting. But they say that before, the, before Noah's Ark, it's possible that there wasn't even rain. Everything was handled by, by dew. There's some arguments on either side. And, and truthfully, it's not a heaven or hell issue, so it's not worth arguing. But that could be something interesting. They may have never even seen rain before. Noah said it's going to rain so much the, the whole earth's going to fill with water. They thought he was crazy. I bet he wondered if he was crazy a couple times. But he didn't give up. He kept going. He kept pressing on. Don't give up. It's with faith and patience you inherit the promises. And this means that when, when tough stuff comes at us, the problems and pain, the stuff that we're all going to face, the last letter he said, don't be surprised if you face various trials. They're going to come. So don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Be steadfast. God will see you through it. And then he says, with steadfastness, but that with godliness. Godliness means looking like God. You should have the characteristics and the nature of God. People should see inside you. Godliness just simply means God-likeness. It means to look like Jesus. It means to make decisions that are right, that are noble, that are just. And it's not just taking the easy way out to avoid pain and trouble. Anybody ever been tempted to do that? Anybody ever done that? My hand's raised. Fortunately, nobody here raised their hand, so I got an awesome church. <clears throat> it's doing what's right because it's right. And he says, brotherly affection. Add to that brotherly affection. This means to love your brother and other believers, those, your church family, to love them. You see, where, when you're in a family, your, your love is, is based on, on relationship and kinship, not based on performance. You know, you love your family because they're your family, even when they do stupid stuff. 
I thank God for that because I've done a lot of stupid stuff and people still love me. Praise God for that. So it works the same way in, in the church. We're all going to do stupid stuff. We're all going to irritate each other. We're all going to offend each other. So the question is, how do we deal with it? Do we still love one another and we work through it or do we just get upset and leave? Do we quit? Do we give up? And then finally he says, supplement that with love. This is the God kind of love. This is the kind of love that, that looks at somebody who is a murderer and still loves them. That looks at somebody who's done something awful and terrible and they still love them. This is seeing people the way God sees them. This means not seeing sin and failures, but rather seeing people as someone who God valued so much that he sent his son to give up his life on the cross for them. And as a side note before we head to the next part, these aren't necessarily to be applied in order. You can utilize all these together. And then he goes on in 2 Peter 1, 8 through 9, he says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful, the knowledge of our Lord Jesus, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. How many want to be effective in the kingdom of heaven? I thought I'd see more hands, to be honest. <laughs> I'll believe that you raised your hand on the inside. You know, when I, when I come up to preach, when I first started, I, I would be a little bit nervous. But now when I come up to preach, the only thing that makes me nervous is that I won't be effective. I, I, I don't so much have a fear of speaking in front of people anymore. I've gotten used to that over the years. I've been doing it for seven, eight years now. And, but I still am concerned when I'm preparing that I won't be effective. I want to be effective for the kingdom of heaven. I want to make an impact for the kingdom of heaven. I want to bring him glory in everything that I do. So the only thing that I'm worried about is being effective. But in order to be effective, we need to walk in these qualities that he was talking about right here. Because it says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, how many know that means that you're not going to have it perfect right out of the gate? It's okay to let them grow and increase. You want to get better at them every single day. That's the thing about being a Christian is, is, is we should be moving forward. When you're born again, everything's not going to be perfect. I know for me, when I was born again, everything didn't work out and my life wasn't perfect and I wasn't fulfilling all these qualities, but I got better every single day. I, I, I improved every single day. I grew every single day and that's the, the point. But the thing is, is, if you don't have these qualities, you can't be effective because how many of you want to, to hear, hear from a Christian that is, is not living a morally excellent life. That's what a hypocrite is, right? That's what they call, so many Christians do that. They, they call themselves a Christian, but they live in, 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 in moral bankruptcy and, and they, they're called hypocrites. They're not living the life that they're supposed to be living. Nobody wants to hear from a Christian who is mean and unloving. By being disciplined or undisciplined and morally suspect and ungodly in our decision making and unloving, we're not demonstrating the impact of a changed life. Matter of fact, we're doing damage to the kingdom of heaven because we look just like the rest of the world. And not only are we ineffective, but we're being destructive to people that aren't born again, what their view of a Christian is anyway. Because now they went from, from looking at something like, man, I want a life like that. To Why would I want to be like that? They look just like everybody else, except for they feel guilty. Peter says, if you're lacking in these qualities, then you are nearsighted. That means you don't see the big picture. 
what it means is that you're looking too closely to yourself. And we think about, well, if I begin to live my life the way God wants me to live it, how is that going to impact me? How is that going to impact the people around me? Am I going to have as much fun? Am I going to be, you know, we begin to do all these things and we wonder what's going on. Because we're just concerned about ourselves instead of looking for what God wants in us. It means you only see yourself. You don't see others. You don't see what's been accomplished in you by Jesus Christ. He says you've actually forgotten that you've been cleansed from the former sins. Because if you remembered and understood what Jesus Christ accomplished inside of you, then this stuff would come out naturally. If you really understood that, if you internalized that and knew that, you wouldn't want to be involved in the stuff that you were involved with before. You wouldn't want to be involved with those things that that had a hold on your life. Because what God has for you is so much better. I've had so many people tell me, I don't want to live the boring Christian life. If If you're living a boring Christian life, you're not doing it right. I've had more excitement, more more stress, more troubles, more impact, more fun, more all of that stuff since I became a Christian. That certainly isn't boring. And we'll end here on verses 10 through 11. It says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Church, we need to be living our lives in such a way that it confirms our calling and our election, that it confirms what has happened inside of us. And what that means is is to have a faith that, that saves and causes an outward demonstration of that reality in your life. If you are saved, it should look like it. There should be some evidence in your life. James says it like this in James 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. He's saying, you say you have faith, but there's no evidence. But let me tell you what, let me show you that I have faith because you can see it in my life. It wasn't the works that saved James. That's not what James was arguing. What he was saying is if you have real faith, you're going to be able to see it in your life. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 9, 27. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Tell you what, if Paul, the writer of the most of the New Testament, had to be disciplined and self-controlled, I think that we need to be as well. You see, salvation is, is not based on a simple prayer you say one Sunday morning. Now that's the opportunity that we give. We always give an opportunity for people to respond. But it's not the prayer that says anybody. You can say that hundreds of times. I know I did it for 20 years in my life. I said it over and over and over again, but it, it never stuck. Stuck? Stuck? Stuck. I like stuck better. It never stuck. That's like a good stick. Good stuck is stuck. It was superficial. There was never a changed heart. But see, that's the thing is that salvation is about that changed heart, that new life inside of you. Like I said, it means there'll be evidence to, that is demonstrated to show what has been accomplished inside of you. And this confirmation that he's talking about here, you're not confirming it to God. You're confirming it to yourself. 
This confirmation he's talking about, it confirms to you and to the people around you that something has happened. Something has changed. And like I said, I'm not saying that the moment that you get saved that everything has to be perfect because it certainly wasn't for me. It's certainly not that way for a lot of people. But you should be growing. You should be moving. If there's no change, you need to question the decision you actually made. Did you make a decision? Were you all in or was it just an emotional moment one Sunday morning that had no lasting impact? A change of heart results in a changed life. And when you have that, that change in heart, that new life inside of you, you'll know that you'll have a place in the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our heads.